Welcome to a special edition of NeuroTalk. I am Nicholas Weiler. In this episode, we'll examine another side of the scientific enterprise you don't always see, but is so ingrained and important to research, scholarly publishing. My guest is John Sack, founder of the leading e-publishing platform, Highwire Press. He'll speak with us about the challenges and opportunities of e-publishing and the push for open access to publicly funded research. We'll also talk about portable peer review and even the idea of separating peer review from the specific journal altogether, and a number of other crazy ideas in the future of science communication. So all this is coming up. Here to talk to us today about the ongoing evolution of science publishing is my guest, John Sack. Thanks for joining us, John. You're welcome. You're a founder of Highwire Press, which is now one of the leading e-publishing platforms in the world. It started back in 1995, publishing the Journal of Biological Chemistry online. And now you host nearly 2,000 different academic publications, including Science, the Journal of Neuroscience, PNAS... And recently, you were also closely involved in the development of eLife, a new open access online journal, which launched in 2012 with support from three high-powered science funding institutions. Could you give us just a, a description of the architecture of Highwire Press, sort of what is the range of services that, that, you, that you offer and how do you interact with, with journals? Because I know that you have, not only do you host these sure. things, but you also have some peer review mechanisms and, and so on. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, you know, to, to vastly simplify and, and probably simplify too much, uh, we're like an electronic printing press. Now, if people who don't know what a printing press is, that might be a little obscure, but we don't, we don't decide what gets published. The publishers decide that, the journals decide that, the editors decide that. We take the material in in whatever form they give it to us, though, and we, we turn it into something more or less consistent in its internal structure so that it can go online pretty rapidly. Mm. So that's our basic thing is we, we transform content, we build it into websites, and we make it so those websites are visible around the world and including visible to Google and to PubMed and, and so on. We also have a peer review system that appeals to journals that have particularly high volume of publications, so they need something very customized and, and efficient for moving through hundreds of submissions a day. That's our, that's our basic way of moving. Now we're going more and more past that as we think, okay, so all this material is in electronic form. What else could you do with it other than run it through an electronic printing press, which doesn't nearly exploit the value in it? So, yeah, there's a lot more to be done. What are, the, what are some of those things you are um, currently developing at Highwire? One of the things that Highwire is that might be a, a bit unique is that it's a community of publishers who are innovating. And each publisher journal is innovating in a space that's special to it, that's very important to it. So one journal might innovate in data, molecular and cellular proteomics, where, where they just focused a lot on getting the data right, getting the data published. Other journals might focus more on translational kinds of, of, of ways of presenting material, so making it more understandable to the non-specialist. Each of those publishers' experiments, and through the community at Highwire, we, we've let the community assess what experiments are most successful, and then publisher B can adopt 
some innovation that publisher A created, if it's appropriate to B, mm-hmm. to have that. And so the, the community as a whole innovates. So a lot of what we do is take good ideas that were sort of breadboarded. I don't know if that's too old a word, but maybe it still has meaning. Um, breadboarded for one journal and find a way to deliver them efficiently to many other journals. So these would be things like visual abstracts, something that the American Chemical Society has been doing now for, I think, eight years maybe in in 40-plus journals, and chemists love them. Cell started doing it a few years ago. Take that kind of visual way of communicating, but you can take in at a glance what this article is about rather than having to read paragraphs of text and tables and so on. Transform that, translate it essentially so that many other journals can do that. Another big thing like that is, is journals putting in significant statements, essentially summarizing the research into a tight summary that says what was known and what does this add to the knowledge base and what can be done with it, what goes next. I mean, these Putting that into a capsule really helps the reader move quickly through the literature. Another is Lens, which I know you've seen in eLife, a way of reading articles that lets you uh, have the article text in a parallel column with either figures or references so that you can be reading the two in parallel rather than having them on one on the front of a page and the other on the back of a page. Right. It, you know, it doesn't make sense online. There are it no doesn't pages. Make sense. There are no pages. Uh, you know, sometimes you want to put your finger in you know, and mark certain places uh, online. You can't do that, but we'll find a way. So the, <laughs> bringing those kinds of experiments when they're shown to be successful to many, many publishers is a key focus for Highwire. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process of why you founded Highwire? Where did this idea come from? Sure. Well, it, it, starting in 1995, this uh, the web was just being born then. Right. Uh, it, it was really so new. And here at Stanford, which was, while well, it wasn't where the web was invented, it was where a lot of exploitation of the web was, was being done. If I remember right, in 1995, Google was, was actually just starting as the founders were doing their research. And what we saw was that the, the web would, could transform the way articles were distributed. And that seemed transformational to us. And we wanted to particularly experiment with ways that you could get beyond the limitations of print, because the web just seemed like an unlimited copy machine, basically, which is one of the things that originally scared publishers about it. So we offered, in particular, we had a concern that that the small or smaller society-based publishers wouldn't have the technology expertise to bring to bring this together with their print models. And we were concerned that they would not flourish in a web-based world. So we put together a technology platform and with the tools to, to exploit the web, and we made it available first to the Journal of Biological Chemistry. We took about five months to develop the platform. This was your typical startup working days and nights and weekends and getting some really incredible people involved. And we unveiled it at a scientific conference. Researchers loved it. And they didn't love it because it was cool technology. They loved it because we had just published about 500 articles that they had never seen because they were all in the mail Hmm. heading to their universities and to their labs because the Journal of Biological Chemistry was about 1,000 pages a week at the time. And so it took about five weeks for Hmm. a print publication to reach a lab. So the, the researchers just looked right past the technology. They just started typing on the on the computers and pulled up these articles that, that and then they wanted to read them. 
Well, that's one of the marks of success, right? That it becomes, it's immediately transparent, transparent, right? It was just invisible to them, which we said, okay, the interface is good enough. We don't know if it's the perfect interface, but it was good enough. Well, what was sort of the seed of this idea? What were you doing before this? And how did you decide, okay, this is something that needs to happen now? The seed of the idea probably was a year or two before when I was on the search committee for the new university librarian. And we were talking with the candidates about ways to solve library problems, which was that serials, journals, were becoming unaffordable because they just the price kept going up and up and up. And in the conversation with one of them, Mike Keller, we basically invented the idea for starting High Wire Press. During the interview? During the interview. Yeah. And Mike got the job. Uh, <laughs> and then so did I. So that really... A great idea. What was your position at the time? I was running the Stanford Data Center at the time, so the mainframe computing center on campus. My interest had always been in databases of text, Mm. which is what we turned journal articles into. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly now, but one of our big innovations at the time was we're going to load all this content into a search engine and let people search it. Believe it or not, no one had come up with that before for Mm. journals. It was a new idea. So at the time, everything was totally analog. It was all on paper, and you just had to have it in your library and yep. go and find it. You would photocopy articles and hand mm-hmm. them to your friends. Yeah. So I can imagine that this was caused quite a ripple at the conference. What conference was that? It was the Experimental Biology 1995. So it was a, a conference of the societies that publish in that experimental biology field. And how quickly did journals start adopting or start coming in? So it's, it's sort of funny. Our, my business model was that we'd do a journal a year for about five years, and then we'd have a real platform. And we probably did three journals the first year, five or six the second year, 10 or 20 the third year. It, was, it, it just took off because the, the journals that were run by the scientists themselves, where the editor-in-chief was a working scientist, which is truly most of them, saw how valuable and transformative it was, and they wanted it right away. Uh, In fact, they knew that if they didn't get it right away, they would be at a disadvantage. So science was maybe not the next one, but it was one of the first two or three. Uh, The Journal of Neuroscience was immediately there, which was really surprising because the, the person who was leading at the time was not a young Turk, Saul Snyder, and he just got it, though, right away. Things have changed a lot for journals and for publishers with the rise of the web and changes in the way that people read and interact with with science. I mean, can you talk about how, going from the version of Highwire that you had in 1995, how have you had to evolve to change with the way that readership was, was changing and the way that publishing was changing? I think readership is, is probably changing faster than publishing is changing. So there's there's always pressure on the journals themselves to move faster. And where that pressure just breaks, breaks a dam, what happens is some new journal will be founded. I mean, so eLife, in a way, is, is a reaction to things not moving along fast enough. Mm. And I'd say what the pressure is the pressure differential. That's what I'll describe it as. I have no knowledge if that's the right description. We'll go with is it. There's publishing and there's communication. And publishing is a very formal process and communication can be as formal or informal as you want it to be. And so there's a pressure differential between those two as people try to adopt and adapt more informal mechanisms to apply to the formal process. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of a gap because one of them moves more quickly. The communication technologies are moving at the speed of the web. Some of your 
listeners might remember Web 2.0, uh, which was, I think, late 90s. Right. The whole concept was that you could talk back to websites. Imagine that. Today, you think, how odd to think that you couldn't. It was always very one-way at the beginning, and, and the publishing process is still very one-way. But the communication process, almost by definition, there's a speaker and a listener. So these two evolving together are really driving the whole thing forward, I think. Do you think that more two-way communication is coming for science publishing as well? Definitely. We've done a lot of interviews with researchers on campus to find out what, what really works for them and what doesn't. And one of the interesting things we've found out is what kind of like, commentary people were interested in. Because we, we've probably all observed that many scientific journal sites have allowed reader commentary, but nobody comments. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really surprising. What we found is that the researchers were really only interested in expert commentary. They weren't interested in people writing in asking questions. They really wanted to, to have a dialogue between experts. And so if we can somehow either filter the comments or authenticate them in some way so that you as a reader can pick through the ones that are that are expert, that would be valuable. So I think that'll probably lead to more of the two-way communication. You know, you see it slash dot, just all sorts of tools out there that where comments are, are successfully filtered. We don't know what the filtering mechanism will be for, for journals, but it seems that authenticated experts is important. And I, I think it's only been in the last year or two that there have been good technologies for doing that. I think ORCID which you know, essentially gives every researcher an ID that they can authenticate to, might be a fundamental technology to enable experts, people to separate themselves as experts from others. Right. I mean, it also gives people an incentive to, you know, if you want to comment, you need to be recognized as mm-hmm. being a good commentator. Right. And, and eventually, if the uh, commentary becomes valued as part of your career record, then I think that'll give people, especially younger scientists, more of an incentive to do it. Right now, I'm, I'm sure they look at it and say, who has the time? I've got a lab to work in. Right. No one's looking, so right. why bother? But on the other hand, I think a lot of young scientists would really value, I mean, I think one of the ways this was phrased that I liked the best was um, every paper a meeting, mm-hmm. which is this idea that, you know, you go to, you have these great conversations at scientific meetings when everyone comes together and talks about the latest research, but you could do that online. Yeah. It's not, the tools maybe aren't there. You mentioned ORCID as being one sort of starting point for authentication and reputation. Are there other technologies out there that you've seen that are going in the right direction? And there's also things like uh, Faculty of a Thousand and mm-hmm. ResearchGate, which are they're sort of different models, but Faculty of a Thousand anyway has expert commentary. And when I've looked at it, it's very interesting, but I don't know how much broad engagement there's been. Yeah, I don't know the, the engagement, whether you know, you'd ever say, oh, it's like, it's like being at a meeting. When we were first meeting with the uh, Journal of Neuroscience about putting that journal online, which was probably 96, 97, that's when they told me that they had about, uh, back then, if I remember right, 3,000 subscribers to the journal, but they had over 30,000 people attending their meeting. And I thought, why aren't we putting the meeting online? That's clearly where everybody really wants to be. That's where the the interactive communication is happening. And the technologies are sort of starting to be there, but there's nothing that that scales quite the way a meeting does. Uh, There's something about physical spaces help people stay oriented and there's elaborate programs and so on. And you, you prepare a lot for a meeting. 
right. especially if you're speaking. So there, there are probably some social aspects of a meeting that the Google Hangout just can't quite make happen yet. Yeah, we may not quite be there. Well, there's virtual reality is coming along well, I hear. So maybe that'll be one way that that'll. So I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll put on Oculus Rift headsets. Uh, <laughs> and it'll be like we're like we're right there. Um, so I want to ask you another sort of broad question that we can get into a few specific areas where it seems like formal science communication is changing. You've described yourself as being a futurist, trying to think about the way things are going to look in you know, 15, 20, 50 years, as challenging as that is. I'm curious if you can sort of prognosticate about the directions that you see scientific publishing going on a broad scale. What are the big, what are the big changes that are coming down the line that publishers and also scientists might want to at least have on their radar? I think the probably the the biggest one that's going to open up new possibilities is publishing data. I just I think that's a, a real sea change. Right now you've got the formal mechanisms for publishing articles, but there's nothing formal about the way data gets attached or detached from articles. It's almost you know you, you have to beg people to get at their data. There's no real expectation that people will share their data. I mean there is in some some journals. Uh, I, I just uh, now many of the funders of data are making it a formal requirement that you have at least a data management plan, which doesn't necessarily mean that you're publishing the data, uh, but a data management plan, which I think will lead to software tools and other mechanisms, platforms, foundations for making data accessible. I think that's just going to be transformative. So. The publishing industry as a whole has sort of been thrown for a loop by the internet, the sort of openness of it and the way that it changes people's interactions with it. it we, we often talk of publishing, whether it's in newspapers or music or books or science publishing, as being in this huge crisis. Do you, do you see it as a crisis or more of a transition? I see it, you know, uh, one organization's crisis is another organizations transition. I think that mm. there are organizations that are in crisis over what's happening in scientific publishing because they've they've based everything on a set of assumptions about so many uh, institutions subscribing at such a price and and so on and if they they stay locked into that too long they're definitely in crisis not in transition. But the publishing apparatus, the scientific publishing apparatus as a whole is is in transition. It's not in crisis. It's it's Sure, it's it's wandering around, bumping into walls as it tries different models out, but that's how you learn where the walls are as you sort of bump into them. I, I think you know, some things will turn out to be dead ends. Others, you say, oh, there really was a need for that. I, I look at PLOS One, and I, I don't think when it was first proposed, anybody knew why would somebody use that? Hmm. Well, obviously, thousands of people do. And they're for very good reasons, and they continue to use it. Maybe it's a little less than it was last year, but it's still going hugely. So obviously, it filled a need. Uh, so I think that that's by watching the trends that that you know suggest there is a pent up need for people to publish very rapidly. Mm. For example, that's what I think Plus One is really all about. I don't know if it's about open access at all, but it's about very rapid publishing. It's about letting. This insight came from you, Nick, about letting people be their own peer reviewers, essentially, where they're an expert in something. You can assess that material as well as any reviewer 
that a journal could sign up. So if somebody can make that material available to you rapidly, as long as you can find it, which is the challenge, right. you can you can review it yourself and decide if it's applicable, if it's good science, and so on. And that's what PLOS One does, is that just move things very quickly from informal to a formal. Uh, and I think, I think there will be some imitators. Uh, Royal Society has a new journal coming out this fall, Open Science, that, that is based on the principles of, uh, as it's called, objective review. And I think that we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. We'll return in a moment to discuss open access publishing, new takes on the peer review process, and the ideas of portable peer review after this break. back with John Sack now to discuss open access publishing. So one challenge publishers um, are facing is what their pay model should be going into the future. Historically, university libraries basically supported academic publishers through subscriptions. But there's been a growing movement to make access to scientific publications free to everyone. Um, PLOS was one of the leaders in the open access movement, or is one of the leaders in the open access movement, pioneered a author pays model. Uh, The money comes from the paper's authors. This hasn't always been popular with scientists for obvious reasons, and it's led to some predatory practices by the less reputable breed of open access journals trying to uh, gouge authors for more and more money. But first of all, what's your take on this movement more broadly? Is open access the way of the future in general, or is it sort of a specific niche need? Well, I think that Open access is part of a category of changes that can transform publishing. The web was one, which transformed sort of the technical model of, you know, essentially the the printing press was unlimited. The uh, open access is an opportunity to rethink the economic model, since the costs are completely different from what they are in a print model. They're almost the opposite in a a way. Um, You spend more of your money getting the content ready for the web and less of it sort of pumping it out hmm. uh, to millions of, of readers. Uh, so uh, I think it lets, it lets uh, publishers and, and a number of them, PLOS, uh, eLife, PeerJ, have, have really uh, taken up uh, the possibility of, of saying, well, suppose this is just different. Uh, we don't need to have those uh, previous assumptions. I think it's also an opportunity to experiment and find out what people value enough to pay for, uh, you know, in the, the basic sense of economics. People like authors, people like readers, people like publishers, people like third parties who want to take content and do novel things with it, create new discoveries by mining uh, the text and content. Uh, so all of these are sort of possible now that you have low, low cost for copying something. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's the, the the key thing that OA really does is free up the the economic models, and so we start to see what can you do that you didn't realize you could do. So, for instance, publishing data, there was simply no way you could publish data in any print model back in the print journal days. There were journals that didn't even have the title 
of an article in the reference because it took up too much space in print. So, you know, you'd just have a citation without the title of the article. How would you even know what, uh, what to make of it? And that just has gone away. So I think publishing data is key. But I also think there are other kinds of things that we can now start publishing along with our articles that help people interpret them. Uh, not everybody who, who picks up an article is an expert in that article. So they need uh, auxiliary materials, like uh, if the author did a podcast uh, or a slide deck at a meeting, wouldn't they want to have another way of presenting that and essentially attaching that material to the article for somebody to take advantage of? Why does that material have to be out there uh, you know, on the, on the public web but not attached to the scholarly article? So I think open access just lets us rethink all sorts of, of those principles, not just the economic ones, but mm. not just who pays, but the, the principles of what is actually limited on the web. Is eLife the first open access venture that Highwire has been uh, part of? or Not, not even close. Not uh, uh, it's really kind of interesting. The, um, the first open access journal we did was in 1997. Hmm. We didn't know to call it open access then. <laughs> we just thought it was free. <laughs> there was no religion involved. Um, it was the Journal of Clinical Investigation. And they said, well, we have enough money. We don't need to charge the subscribers. Hmm. And uh, so they made it free to everybody. And they hoped that the subscribers, the institutions, would keep paying the subscriptions. And they did for many years. But as library budgets got more and more constrained, they stopped, and that caused a problem for the journal. Right. But they were they were the bravest of the brave. Uh, it's like I, amazing. Um, so I think that was one of the earliest ones. But there were also journals that would make some articles free because they were of extraordinary public interest. So New England Journal of Medicine would do this. Science would do this. PNAS would do this. And, you know, sometimes extraordinary public interest might be an article on dinosaurs. Right. I, I, that's, that's fine. That's how kids get attached to science, right? So I, I think that was very smart. But nobody had the full economic model, I think, until somebody said, oh, you can have a whole journal based on, on this kind of principle of someone other than the reader paying for the science. And I heard a story that you are in part responsible for the development of open access in the first place. <laughs> I, well, this is uh, I, uh, I've heard third hand uh, <laughs> that uh, one of the uh, originators, Pat Brown, originators of the concept of open access, said that uh, he came up with the idea because I said no to him about being able to publish all his data in an article. And he could not understand why that wasn't possible. It actually wasn't my decision, of course, because we're just the electronic press. But I, I think originally the, the concept Pat was working on was essentially making the data more accessible. I mean, open access was – I don't I don't know for how long this was true – was about making the, uh, the data open access uh, so that uh, labs that needed data to analyze could find it through reading – through the literature hmm. and find the data sets through the art. You know, an article is an excellent index, if you will, to the to the data behind it. Uh, so I think that was the, the uh, uh, a seminal idea. But from that, it uh, became well, why why make the data free but not the articles? Right. That's what I imagine happened after that. So, so eLife has a sort of different model where the they are funded by the Wellcome Trust and Howard Hughes and the Max Planck Institute. And so they don't charge either authors or subscribers. It's free. Maybe this is speculation, but it, is this a, a model that can go forward into the future? I mean, it seems like if 
authors are paying in an open access model, they're going to be paying out of their funders' pockets anyway because they're going to use their research funds for that important mm -hmm. expense. Do you think this conflict between who ought to be paying for the results of the scientific process might be taken up by research funders as just part of their mandate? Definitely some research funders believe it is part of their mandate. The Wellcome Trust is a great example. Uh, others uh, just say, well, it's just part of your research grant and you can use it to pay a graduate student to go to uh, a meeting or you can pay your open access fees. Mm. Uh, I think it's pretty varied out there. I, I wouldn't predict one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know um, how things will go. I, I, you know, I think the, the researchers are in right now in the position to make the best trade-offs of what's the best use of money is to, you know, to get the research out there uh, more widely. I think the, the, the bibliometric research shows that open access articles uh, are read far more than a subscription access article is read uh, but are not cited more. Hmm. Uh, which suggests that the people who are reading the articles, the more of the much more people who are reading them, are not themselves writers of the literature in that field. Hmm. They might be people who are interested in, in science in general, or they might be people who are interested in an article because it's tangential to their field, but they're not going to cite it. Hmm. So, well, If I understand that correctly, it sounds... I mean, another thing, another way that might uh, come about is if there's just um, a lower hit rate for reading an article and then wanting to cite it in your work. So if, you know, open access is, let's just put everything out there and then people can do their own filtering to mm -hmm. decide whether this is going to be worthwhile for your research, then you would also expect to see more people reading those open access articles and fewer people citing them just because your assurance of quality on every single one might be a little bit less. Uh, your assurance of quality relative to your own needs right. would be less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that says an open access article is less quali lower, lower quality than a. You're filtering as a reader rather than as an institution. I'm well, that it actually um, brings me to another question about open access, which is, what are what are the ways that people are developing to to find these articles? Plus, one publishes. I actually don't know how many thousands of articles. Um, a month. If, if that's all just out there, there, there needs to be some way of coming across the article that's actually going to be useful for your, mm -hmm. for your research. In our interviews with researchers, we found some pretty varied mechanisms. Uh, my favorite is gossip, hmm. uh, which means that I'm relying on you as part of my social network to tell me what to read. And there's, I don't think that's any different from what it was 20, 40 years ago. I think that's just the way students and teachers and peers interacted forever. It's just now it's you send the URL rather than making a photocopy of something. Uh, so, it, it, But in addition to gossip, we know that people uh, use alerting mechanisms a lot. They still read email tables of contents. In fact, they read email tables of contents rather than reading journals. Mm. Our research showed that people are reading anywhere from 8 to 10 email tables of contents regularly, mm. uh, whereas before when they were reading print journals, they only read three or four print journals. So in a way, they're being exposed to more information, but it's probably a shallower set of information. Uh, clearly, mechanisms like Google Alerts, Google Scholar Alerts, PubMed Alerts. But I, I wonder, this is now speculation, it's not based on our research, whether people are switching from just in case to just in time. In other words, before, 
years ago, we felt a responsibility to stay well-informed in our field. Are we now so busy that we say we can't stay up with our field? There's too much to stay up with. When I need to know something, I'll go get it. Mm. I'll become well-informed by reading uh, key papers, seeing what's been highly cited in my field, and essentially go back and reconstruct being well-informed at the time I need it. I have no evidence that that that's happening, but it would fit other things happening in the culture, uh, that is in the consumer culture, where people people are not reading newspapers regularly to stay well-informed. They they dip in when they need to. They have Mm -hmm. mechanisms for, you know, pulling out what they need to know right at that time. Yeah. I've definitely felt that pressure in research. So you've got at least one data point. Yeah. But. I, I, well, but I think what we our, our consumer lives start to um, teach us efficient ways of being researchers. Years and years ago, I used to read movie reviews. Yeah. Now, I go and read the review when I'm thinking I might go to that movie. I don't I don't regularly read movie reviews. I might go to better movies if I did, but uh, I think that we just have better mechanisms now to cope with the uh, the information that a just in a just in time mechanism works pretty well. Right, and there's so much information out there that trying to stay up on all of it is right. feels impossible. Well, in fact, when, when we um, did our researcher interviews, what people told us was that finding information is not the problem; reading it is. Hmm. Uh, that people had no trouble finding things to read. And so if we could help them, we as platform developers like Highwire Press, journals and so on, could help them, it would be to help them to take in the information more rapidly, which is what leads to high value for visual abstracts, high value for significant statements, high value for reading interfaces like Lens that lets you, you know, scan the figures uh, very rapidly and take in an article at a glance. I think that's what people want more of. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit before we talk about peer review, can you tell us a little bit about um, how Highwire came to be involved in the eLife project and to what extent you worked with them to do the research about exactly how that should be set up, how the their model should should work on online? Well, I think it, I can tell you how we be, we came to be involved, uh, which was that uh, we had mutual friends. The publisher at PLOS uh, had been at, at Highwire, mm-hmm. and uh, she sort of arranged the introductions, which I greatly appreciate. But I can't take any credit at all for their cleverness. Elife's cleverness is all their own. I, I look at something and I say, "Damn, I don't know. Will that work?" And they're finding out too. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, I think it's great to see them publishing review comments, the digests. It's just allowing people to essentially attach their data to articles. I mean, these are things that I think matter a lot to either an author. So the data might matter a lot to an author or to somebody who wants to reproduce the work. To readers trying to move more quickly through the literature, I bet the digest makes a big difference. So I think they're they're just continually moving things forward, and I think we'll see more radical stuff from them in 2015 and 2016. Mm. I have no doubt. Do you know what it is yet? I can't say if I do or not. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll return shortly to discuss more big changes in the future of science communication, such as what we should do about peer review and whether preprint repositories will ever actually take off in biology. (laughs) 
We're here with John Sack, founder of the leading e-publishing platform Highwire Press, which digitally disseminates thousands of scholarly journals, books, reference works, and proceedings. I'd like to talk about a specific part of scholarly publishing, which is the peer review process. This form of self-regulation determines an academic paper's suitability for publication, but as many scientists have asked, the traditional route to publication is very long, and a lot of people have called for serious reforms to how this is done so that it can it can be faster to get articles into print and potentially so people can actually get credit for the hard work of doing reviews, which currently is both anonymous and thankless. So we've talked a little bit about eLife, the new online journal that uh, Highwire is hosting. Um, they've promoted a couple of possible changes to the peer review process. One of them is a sort of reviewer's charter, which is intended to be a sort of Hippocratic oath for the scientific reviewer, i.e., let's all be reasonable and efficient in our reviews to make everyone's lives easier. There's also been a, a consortium for portable peer review uh, that they've joined with Biomed Central, PLOS, and EMBO. The portable peer review is this idea that authors could take their reviews from one journal to another in the consortium during the, the process of trying to get it get it published rather than starting over from scratch every time and having to go through another six-month or year-long process. Can you give us just a, a little background about your perspective on, on these efforts, the different models for how peer review might might be changed and, and what it means for, for the journals? Well, I think the, there is change coming to peer review. You can predict that by seeing where publishing experiments are happening, not necessarily that they're being successful, but that they are – people are experimenting for a reason. And – we see, for instance, something uh, pretty recent uh, that was announced, the uh, preprint server called BioArchive mm -hmm. from Cold Spring Harbor Labs, which there, there isn't peer review. There's essentially community review to say this is an appropriate document for this server, but it's a preprint server. This has been pretty successful. We've seen uh, PLOS introduced, um, I think right around the start of the year, a community-based review concept. I don't know how successful it's been, but it was sort of a recognizing that the volume of things that are coming in is, is so great that uh, how can you apply filters to it? We've also seen an experiment, uh, something called pre-score and pre-eval, just fairly recently announced where essentially you can score documents, score articles based on the quality of review that has been applied to them. How many reviewers were there? Are the reviewers themselves highly recognized and cited and, and you know, essentially give a score to a document? This is, sorry, this is for a, a reader who's trying to find something or for an academic review committee? Or, or who, is, who is that? It's, it's typically a reader would look at the score that a document had received through its peer review. Mm. And essentially documents that scored higher, you'd know the peer review was more rigorous based on certain criteria. The, the point is, with mechanisms like this, and there are probably a few others, a few more minutes I could think of them all, that, that a lot of evaluation is, is based on impact factor. If you think about it, impact factor is a terribly lagging indicator. You, you get an impact factor for a journal about three years after the articles are published. Right. Uh, so someday when you're the editor of a journal... Uh, you know, and you're a new editor, and you you say, "How am I doing?" And somebody says, "I'll tell you in three years." Yeah. You will think, "Oh my God!" You know, I could crash and burn in a lot less than three years. So what I what I see an interest in uh, the community is is essentially moving evaluation upstream. Uh, in other words, yes, citations are a perfectly valid way of of evaluating a type of impact, but can we find ways to evaluate 
even predict impact ahead of that. And so I think pre-score is a, is a way of doing that. So I see these experiments happening. They're, they're interesting experiments. And, and so I think peer review is, you know, is ready for change. The, um, the peer review consortia that you mentioned, there are several now. One of the first I knew of was a neuroscience review consortium, which was not even journals from the same publisher. Mm. Uh, that was striking that, that people were publishers and societies were willing to share this, these documents. But the whole motivation was to recognize that the peer review system was a terrible burden on the reviewers. It, and that, you know, if, if a, an article went to three different journals, there might be six people involved in reading that document. And, and that's an awful lot of really important people's time. So what can you do to make it more efficient? Well, you could flow the reviews along with it. Uh, if it, something had been rejected from one journal because it wasn't in scope or something, uh, move it on to the next with the with the author's approval. Mm-hmm. So I think these, these consortia are really interesting to watch. I don't know if any have really taken off, though. Right. So I think that's... There should be enough data from that experiment to know whether this is is working for authors. Um, article level metrics has been one of the sort of buzzwords about how mm-hmm. to what an alternative to just doing impact factor, which is the you know overall number of citations that articles in a journal get. Can you talk about how sure. that's uh, coming along? Yeah, there are actually I differentiate article level metrics from alternative metrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both guy both go by the alt tag. Right. Uh, so article level metrics is uh, will be typically uh, things like how many downloads has this article uh, gotten. Uh, how many citations has this article gotten? Whereas alt metrics will be how many tweets, how many blog posts, uh, mm. uh, and so on. More non-standard ways uh, yeah, of communicating. Yeah, non-scholarly, uh, right. less formal right. uh, mechanisms. Uh, we did, um, I won't call it a, a study, uh, we interviewed uh, 10 researchers on uh, campus uh, to ask them what mattered to them in, in uh, article level and, and alt metrics. And it was really interesting. Uh, we asked them uh, first uh, as an author, and then as a reader, mm-hmm. what mattered to them. And as an author, they said everything matters. Hmm. Uh, we want to know everything about our article, downloads, citations, tweets, blog posts, you know, uh, whatever. And then as readers, they said, nope, just citations. Citations are the only thing that matters. That's the, the, essentially the gold uh, standard is, has this article been cited how much? So it's, uh, really, and, and obviously people... We were asking them at the same time to talk about these. They recognized uh, how um, different their opinions were as, as an author. Uh, because as an author, you're trying to say, how much impact have I had in the community at large? Right. Uh, which there are lots of ways of measuring that. And because some articles have very broad kinds of communities. I think of a clinical article. You know, how many lives did I save? Not how many citations did I get? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it... Uh, it's not surprising in a way that we, we got some pretty different measures from people. But uh, we see adoption of, of article-level metrics and alt metrics uh, taking off. Um, primarily, uh, this got launched, I think, a huge motivation uh, from PLOS One because it was a way of distinguishing a mass of articles. So, you know, what are the most valuable articles in this mass of articles? Well, one of the ways was to count things because the computer can do that right. uh, more easily than, you know, you could read all those articles. But I think it's now gone over to other OA journals, not just the ones that publish a huge volume. And it's it's also finding its way into uh, most journals, I think, will have some kind of uh, metrics yeah. uh, eventually. Yeah, I wonder whether... People... Uh, it, it does, we had an interesting reaction from uh, one of the editors 
uh, in one of our core journals a few years ago when this started coming out. He, he said, no, I won't have it. It contributes to the horse race. Hmm. And he really did not want his journal to be about a horse race. Uh, that, you know, your article got six citations and yours only got four, therefore somehow yours is more valuable. Well, to to person X, you know, it matters what, what matters to me. It's not about how many citations an article got. Right. So, and particularly not if it's how many did it get this year. Yeah. I mean, because maybe yeah, in right. 10 years, who knows? Yeah, that's right. In some fields, uh, citations take years to develop. I think uh, math, for instance, it's like, five plus years. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think there's a reason that some editors don't like uh, the, the concept, but I suspect it's just going to become one of those things that everybody has. In the physical sciences, um, archive and other, I mean, I think the archive is the main preprint server for them, mm -hmm. for physicists and so on. And it's been extremely successful. That seems to do the trick. Why do you think it's taken so long for biology to catch on? And are there reasons why it might be less successful for biology that makes it a harder problem? I think when uh, the concepts of open access were first floated, um, I'm going to guess that was in the early 2000s, um, the core concept uh, was something called eBiomed, uh, and it was a preprint server for biology. That was how open access was going to be done. People would just post preprints, and they would be free. This got so hugely rejected by at least the, the editorial community, that is, editors-in-chief of, of journals, that it was just uh, it was the third rail of, of science publishing, uh, that I think it just took years, and a decade. This is, and this is through saying, if you publish, if you put your preprint up, we will not publish your article. No, it was worse than that. It, definitely, that most journals had a, a policy back in the early 2000s that if, if your article was published somewhere else, we wouldn't consider it. That definitely took years and years to change. But I think this was more, um, this is evil. That is, it's dangerous to publish unreviewed research. Public health could be harmed. There's no control over what would be in there. You know, it would lead to, you know, cigarette companies publishing research about whatever. Isn't that true? Don't they? It was, it created such a hot spot that I think nobody wanted to go near it for years mm -hmm. and years. So do you think it's it's mostly because of the connection to clinical biology? That was my guess is where it started, but it spread. I mean, the, 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 the third rail concept was, was pretty broad. That is, basic science journals didn't want to touch it either. Hmm. So that's not the case for physics. Physics, just, it just started so long ago. It started before the web, physicists posting these things. I they can, don't I, have trouble with people posting crazy articles that, you know... I think it's because physicists uh, know that they can do their own peer review, just as, as you know you can in, in the fields you're expert in. Physicists had to share, especially high-energy physicists, had to share their research rapidly so that two people wouldn't do the same experiment and waste some pretty precious government resources, the, the beam time on a linear accelerator. So they just they did it as a matter of practical necessity. Mm. So they didn't waste graduate students' time and and things even more valuable, bean time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, there are some more sort of radical proposals to take apart the function of the journals entirely and say, well, one group could do peer review and give a stamp of approval and there could be a statistical review service and I just put something up on my preprint server and we let the community decide gradually how important it is. I could even just put figures and data up on Figshare and give it a DOI 
And if I can get a stamp of approval from the nature peer review company, then people are going to say, oh, that, that's probably important data. And it's, that would be sort of a more radical shift in the way that scientific communication works. It, does that seem like something that would ever actually evolve out of our current system? It's a good question. And when I hear a question like that, I want to say, what has happened like that? And how, how did it go? Hmm. I want to go find some corollary somewhere. And the, the closest thing I can think of is, is this concept of, that's been floated for years of overlay journals, where the idea is that people would publish things into a preprint server and then publishers, journal editors, would go find the good stuff and collect it essentially into a table of contents for an issue. Mm-hmm. It hasn't happened. I don't know of any successful overlay journals. Hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of – I don't know why. Right. Uh, it seems like a good idea. It, 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 the theory, uh, you know, we all thought, that's really a very good idea. You can find the stuff. You basically publish it for free. That is, you, you, now that it's open access with a CC by copyright on it, you may be able to essentially build overlay journals without having to pay anybody for the rights. Why does it not happen? I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious about that future. It's uh, – a fantasy of mine to just sort of be able to say, well, I'm going to curate mm-hmm. my the thing that I'm interested in. Sure. Um, this, you know, this happens in science communication with people, there are science writers who send out their weekly emails of five things that I think are really interesting around yep. the, the world. And it's, it's one nice way of doing this sort of curation and filtering. So maybe what's happened is that the overlay journal isn't a journal. It's an RSS feed. It's a curated list. I mean, what's Pinterest? It's, you know, people curating. Yeah. Uh, some really interesting images and, and stuff. So I think that, that maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. I'm, by looking under the journal rock, I'm not finding the overlays, but they're actually out there more on the informal web. The thing that we should keep in mind is changing things rapidly has – the good side sort of obvious. You, you give uh, uh, authors much more flexibility in what they can communicate and how they can communicate it. The downside of that is that the – the upside of the formal article mechanism is that it's very quick for people to interpret things rapidly because they know exactly where to look for certain kinds of things. Right. Um, if, if articles don't all have method sections, where will you go to find the methods? So I think that there's, there's a bit of a tension between uh, authors wanting to communicate the best way possible but needing readers to have an efficient experience for the readers. So I think this will just gets worked out over time as disciplines evolve their practices. So, for example, in clinical medicine, clinical publishing, there's a concept of a structured abstract. That's pretty universal Mm -hmm. uh, now in clinical journals because it just helps readers find the data in the abstract. I think we'll probably start to see something like this in the more basic science journals over time because it will help those readers, but it'll take a while to figure out what are the structures of an abstract in basic science. Clinical, it's a little clearer. Right. Speaking of sort of the the opportunities for change and the way that you know things are going to change for authors, do you have a a vision of what you think the scientific publishing process will will look like or could look like in five to ten years? And what are the things that you are looking ahead to? I know enough be scared to answer that question. <laughs> Before I came over here, I was looking at uh, a video, which was a video group would talk to a bunch of kids and give them something to react to. 
And the video I was watching was uh, the interviewer handed the kids a Sony Walkman Mm. and trying to watch what it was they did with it, how they figured out what it was. And the first thing the kids tried to do, most of them, was talk to it. They assumed it was an old-fashioned cell phone that they could speak to, not realizing it was a one-way device. Hmm. In other words, it was a publishing medium but not a communication medium. And I wonder, you know, in, in 10 years, are, are we going to be saying, well, we were in the Sony Walkman phase here, uh, and, uh, you know, your kids are going to look and say, really? You, you published in journals that you couldn't talk back to? Hmm. Uh, so, so I think things could be pretty different in, in, uh, in 10 years. I, I think um, the things I'm sort of looking forward to, I, I expect to see a lot more access to data, uh, a lot more visualization. I really hope that we manage to get the formal structure connected to the informal structure. In other words, the article, the, the prepared formal article, somehow connect that up with the with the, the meeting abstracts and the meeting presentations and the um, uh, the, the lab discussions uh, that that go on that are related to a, to an article. Um, I also wonder if if we'll see um, uh, essentially the article going a level below the article. You know, it used to be that you had a journal which had issues, which had articles. Well, the DOIs could reference sections of articles. It could reference paragraphs and articles. Why don't they? Um, you know, when, when I, uh, as a researcher in humanities, cite a book, I don't cite the book. I don't cite the article. I cite the page in a particular edition, which is a lot more efficient for somebody who's trying to check up on what I'm talking about. Um, the idea that you can't cite a fact in context in a in a research paper seems quaint to me. I'd, I'm surprised it's persisted this long, uh, but it would just take lots of change and lots of the technical infrastructure to allow you to say, I mean, this paragraph here uh, in this article. And I think that's surprising. It doesn't happen. I mean, you, we've watched in you know with with iTunes suddenly. You didn't have albums, you had tracks, mm-hmm. right? So why shouldn't you have paragraphs and articles? Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, John. I've enjoyed it. We've been talking to John Sack, the founding director of Stanford's Highwire Press. Thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Mark Padalina and myself, Nick Weiler. Music by Adam Fuchel. Special thanks to KZSU, Highwire Press, and of course, our guest, John Sack. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org. That's N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm Nick Weiler.